It's time for our regular segment with barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Michael Mulligan, joining us for Legally Speaking. Good morning, Michael. How you doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Lots of interesting things on the agenda this week. I see we have the Liquor Distribution Act on the agenda. Shall we start there? I think that's a great place to start. Um, this act, the BC Act, I think uh, once we have a discussion about it, uh, we'll answer why is it uh, that the BC GEU uh, is smartly picketing uh, liquor distribution warehouses rather than some other location, right? What's going on with that? Yeah. Um, and the history of the, to explain that, we have to start in 1917 uh, with prohibition, right? We had prohibition in British Columbia back in 1917. It came in by referendum after a bit of a flip-flop. It originally didn't look like it uh, passed uh, until there was a discovery that a bunch of uh, uh, dead soldiers in World War One had voted against prohibition. Uh, once that was discovered, prohibition was then implemented. Uh, women's suffrage also passed at the same time. Although none of that lasted very long, we got rid of prohibition in British Columbia in 1920, uh, following, amongst other things, a scandal that a person who was in charge of it had a train car of liquor being shipped into BC. Hmm. So away it went. And then on June 15, 1921, British Columbia opened its first government liquor store. And we moved to a model of the government having a monopoly uh, over the uh, distribution and sale of liquor. And that brings us to the Liquor Distribution Act, which is an act that is still in force all the way back, right? All of this started back in 1921. And essentially what British Columbia has done uh, is that they have created for themselves, for the province, a monopoly uh, over the distribution uh, and uh, sale of uh, alcohol. Uh, and the way they've done that is through the liquor distribution branch. And if you look at the Liquor Distribution Act, the way that it operates is that it says that the government of British Columbia gets title to all liquor coming within the boundaries of British Columbia. Hmm. And it also takes title over liquor that is manufactured in British Columbia once it's put into a like a bottle, right, yeah. or something, a packaging, right? Interesting. Um, and so the government takes control of all the liquor uh, and then is able to distribute it both to government retail liquor stores and now to private liquor stores. But that's the essential mechanism. It's the government uses its control uh, uh, over uh, such things to uh, create a monopoly for uh, itself. And the act uh, creates uh, prohibitions and offenses if other things are done. Um, and uh, so that's how we operate. Now, the result of that, flash forward to today, uh, is that we have now a liquor distribution branch which uh, employs, according to them, 5,000 people in 200 communities around British Columbia. Wow. Uh, and they describe in their uh, you know multiple job postings that they have been a top employer 14 times over the past few years. They describe themselves as an exceptional place to work with flexible hours, earned days off, extended health and dental benefits, maternity and parental leave, top-ups, pension programs, in-house professional leadership development, uh, and uh, so forth and so on. Uh, and so the reason why uh, it's a, uh, I think, a smart strategic move, if you're the BCGEU, to picket the liquor distribution branch is you are managing to picket something which the government has turned into a monopoly for the distribution of this product. Uh, and when you step back even a little bit and think about that, um, it's really a remarkable thing. 
right? We, we don't have separate government-run distribution and retailing operations for all kinds of other things. Like, you don't have a separate scheme in place to uh, distribute and retail uh, orange juice no. or, <laughs> no. you know, even pop or even other things that yeah. we like to regulate. Cigarettes. Like, we don't have a B.C. Ministry of Cigarettes, huh. which we're warehousing it and shipping yeah. it out to people. And so... The, the idea of having the government take this monopoly position on the distribution uh, and uh, of liquor yeah. is really an anomaly. Now, mm. we're copying it, and we're copying it for cannabis. And so what the government has done is they've sort of mirrored this model of how we're distributing alcohol with distributing marijuana, right? Um, and so... That's why it's a strategic thing to picket these warehouses, right? Because but for the monopoly, right, and in places which don't have that, there isn't a whole separate mechanism for distributing that product. Like, uh, you know, the grocery stores seem to manage just fine distributing breakfast cereal and bread and drinks of all kinds, and you wouldn't have a completely separate parallel exclusive distribution model for those products, and even products like cigarettes, which we are keen on regulating and taxing highly, you don't have 5,000 government employees who are responsible for doing that. Hmm. And so I suppose in the current context, you know, as uh, if uh, supplies are running low and you can't get the wine you want or whatever it might be, really I think the question people should be asking uh, themselves beyond the sort of the merits of the particular contract dispute is why? Why, uh, in 2022, when alcohol is available everywhere, yeah. and frankly, the, the you look at the other, uh, like you look at other job postings that the liquor distribution branch has, uh, things like for a, a senior store manager, they want somebody with experience must include uh, achieving and driving sales. And so... It's not like this is some organization which is to encourage templates. <laughs> yeah, they have sales something. targets. Yeah. You're, you're trying to drive and achieve sales. <laughs> you want to sell more liquor as much as you possibly can. Probably, I, I would imagine, although I haven't looked at the job <sighs> postings for the marijuana distribution uh, people, it's likely the same thing. So it's not as if this exists out of some interest in safety. It's not as if this needs to exist in order to tax things, right? We tax cigarettes highly. We tax every other product, right? We have uh, PST and GST. There's all mechanism in place for doing that. We tax cars. You can change the rates however you want. You can regulate these things however you want, like with cigarettes. We've decided don't have them on display and don't advertise them uh, while we're trying to drive sales for alcohol. Um, and so I think really what people should be reflecting upon is, is it time to move past the approach to alcohol that came out of 1921? Yeah. And do, should we really have this parallel system with thousands of people employed in it? Remembering, of course, we're in a time when there's a serious shortage of employees. Yeah, right? good point. Great. You know, sort of on one level, you might say, well, look, you know, is this a good use of, is we're spending all these resources on thousands of people to have this parallel distribution system owned by the government for liquor? So on one criticism of that might be, well, you're just kind of increasing costs, right? When you have thousands of people with this completely parallel system, which is clearly unnecessary given that private enterprise manages to distribute every other product without any problem. And 
liquor could be distributed right along with orange juice and cigarettes without a whole other apparatus and all these spaces and separate stores and people and branches and managers and assistant managers and all of this. But the other level to it uh, is, boy, we could sure use 5,000 people helping out in other areas, right? You know, when we can't hire people to process immigration applications or issue passports or, uh, you know, make the airports function or uh, have the hospitals function, the allocation of resources here has that separate and significant element to it as well. And maybe you would have a different uh, analysis of it if we were in a time of recession and you said, well, people are going to be unemployed and maybe there's a benefit to having uh, you know, additional government employment, better to have people, um, you know, rolling around kegs of beer or shipping off bottles of wine than, you know, not having a job. But we have a time now where we have a desperate need for employees of all kinds. Yeah. Uh, you know, restaurants can't hire people. All these things aren't functioning for lack of employment. And so there may be a real opportunity here to reflect upon whether all of this is should be wrapped up in 2022 um, rather than duplicating it and having another whole system for marijuana distribution for heaven's sakes surely all of this uh, human effort and all of these people with experience at achieving and driving sales and doing all these things could be put to very productive use doing all kinds of other things Um, And when you even reflect upon the idea that we have these things sold in separate retail establishments, I mean, this is a separate issue from the distribution warehouse side of it, but we don't do that for virtually anything else. Like we don't have, we don't set up a bunch of cigarette stores and a bunch of separate orange juice stores. (laughs) It just sounds funny to say, but you're right. You're right. Yeah. If you keep, if you propose that now, you'd be sort of, well, who's thought of that? Something out of uh, the Soviet, (laughs) you know, (laughs) communist era or something, right? Really? You're having a separate cigarette store with a bunch of employees running around, handing it out to people. Really? That's what you're doing. Of course you wouldn't. Uh, and these things, of course, take on a life of their own, right? Because yeah. you wind up with, you know, 5,000 people in all these places and all these people that are, you know, taking their professional accreditation courses and leadership development courses, and right? The whole thing just kind of gets momentum and on and on it goes, right? Yeah. Uh, but perhaps now would be an inflection point for the government to think about whether we should streamline that uh, and uh, not only, I think, uh, save a bunch of resources, the, the money that's being used to employ the separate army of 5,000 people could surely be put to better use, I don't know, hiring more general practice doctors or opening another medical school or whatever. There are all kinds of public needs we've got these days. Yeah. Uh, and so the resources that flow into this effort could surely be better allocated and the people could sure be doing something more productive. We need all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. Uh, And uh, maybe we shouldn't have this completely parallel system. But that's why it is that the BCGEU is picketing exactly that pressure point. It's a pressure point which the government has created for itself by creating this separate monopoly distribution scheme. Uh, And so, um, you know, perhaps rather than, uh, you know, expanding that all out for marijuana, um, we should have a different approach. And, you know, boy, that marijuana thing has sure taken a different tact, right? Uh, you know, we, we've gone from it being criminalized. And yeah, I remember at the beginning yeah. of my career, um, having a client I was working on who was charged with um, first-degree murder. 
Yes. And when he was arrested, they found in his pocket a single joint of marijuana, which they charged him with separately. Wow. Uh, and ran the separate prosecution for possessing a joint of marijuana, which you would think in the context of the other charge the person was facing, perhaps that's not the most serious thing going on in your life. No. But it gives you an idea of where we've come, right? After a couple of decades, we've gone from, right, we'll put in enormous public resources, battering, ramming in people's <laughs> doors and charging people having a joint of marijuana to, like, during the pandemic, I must say it was just remarkable. You know, it was like you've shut down all kinds of things, yet the essential service at all costs is we must keep open the marijuana store. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Boy, we've come a long way. We Uh, have. We have, haven't we? But then again, when you think about it, you step back even one more step, you might want to ask yourself, why do we have a bunch of separate stores selling marijuana? Does that make sense? How many hundreds or thousands of people should we have warehousing, shipping, retailing, promoting, and driving the sales of marijuana is a separate thing. Surely that could be dealt with the same way we deal with tobacco, uh, which would be to use the same distribution mechanisms and retailing mechanisms that exist for everything else in the economy. Um, and uh, it would be, I think, tremendously more efficient. It doesn't prevent regulation. And, you know, maybe we don't need to be driving sales of some of these things, right? I think it doesn't make sense to battering ram in people's doors. But at the same time, I'm not sure we need to have a team of people driving liquor sales and driving marijuana sales. Fine, if people are interested in those things, you know, it doesn't make sense to criminalize it, for heaven's sakes, which we've tried before. But surely we don't need to be driving sales and uh, we can have a proper regulatory scheme and maybe save a whole lot of money and free up thousands of people to do many of the important jobs we just can't. Uh, find people to do. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, that's a perfect opportunity to take our first break. We're back right after this. Legally speaking continues on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan. Michael, before the break, we were talking about the liquor distribution branch of British Columbia and how it came to be. Talking about various roles of employment that exist, staying with the theme of general employment law, resignation versus dismissal. One might think those two distinct categories in which one may leave one's employment are clear, and yet there are cases where it is difficult to tell what's what. That's sure true. Human affairs are just so endlessly variable, right? Yeah. Uh, And... That distinction really matters in the context of a claim for wrongful dismissal, right? Now, the thing to bear in mind, of course, is when somebody is not uh, this is not a, a, a union uh, job where there's some different rules, but in the ordinary employment context, uh, an employer, employee is, of course, free to quit anytime they want for whatever reason they like, right? Hey, I don't want to do this job anymore, right? Uh, and the flip side of it is that an employer is also free to fire somebody at any time because they don't want the employee anymore or they've decided to downsize or whatever it might be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but absent cause to fire an employee, like they've done something really bad, right, with respect to their employment, uh, the idea is that uh, an employer needs to either give notice to an employee or pay them in lieu of notice, right? So an employer could say, look, I'm terribly sorry, business is slow, we're going to have to lay people off, uh, but I'm telling you that's going to happen a year from now, (laughs) right? You might say, well, that's fine. The person can then find other employment. Uh, But where there is a claim that there hasn't been enough notice uh, given, then there can be this kind of a claim for wrongful dismissal. And then it matters very much, was the person fired 
Or did they just quit or abandon their employment? And it's not always obvious, right? Sometimes it's not some letter saying, I quit, right? So what happened, right? Yeah. Uh, and so in the recent uh, recent case that came out, it involved a fellow who was a senior driver, a truck driver, uh, for a uh, company that hauled uh, logs. He was 68 years of age. He'd worked there uh, for many years, 15-plus years. Uh, and sadly, in 2019, he had a medical emergency and required heart surgery uh, and ended up being off work for better part of a year. Uh, and uh, he contacted at that point uh, the, uh, the foreman, and said he's ready to return to work. Foreman said, okay, fine, get me a medical, uh, something from a doctor saying you're okay to work again. He sent that two days later, uh, and then just nothing happened. <laughs> the employer uh, didn't contact uh, the employee saying, yeah, we've got some shifts for you or some logs to haul, mm-hmm. and it looks like the uh, the employee didn't do much either, right? He eventually came in and kind of cleared out uh, some of his personal effects, and he took. He concluded, hey, they're just not going to give me any more work to do here, right? Uh, and after four months of not having any work given to him, he took another job uh, he was able to find, which only lasted a short term, short time, and then eventually sued the employer for wrongful dismissal, hmm. which required the judge to decide, well, what happened here? Did the fellow just kind of walk away to take this other job, uh, or was he effectively fired or terminated? And there's a test for that, and the test is different in terms of whether somebody was dismissed or, like, fired or whether they, like, voluntarily quit or resigned. Interesting. And the test is different for this reason. When you're analyzing or when a judge is analyzing whether somebody was dismissed, like fired, the test is a, for the judge is whether, objectively speaking, based on the acts of the employer – uh, did what happened amount to a dismissal? That's different when analyzing, did somebody resign? And when a judge is analyzing whether somebody resigned, the judge needs to look at both what objectively happened, like did what they, you know, were their actions consistent with somebody who was quitting? But also a judge needs to determine, did they have a subjective intent to resign? Hmm. And that's different, that that subjective element of intention to resign doesn't apply to an employer. You just look at what did the employer do, right? And some of that may come from the fact that an employer may not be a single mind, right, for example, right? Um, right? You could have, uh, you know, the foreman does this, maybe the <laughs> vice president thought something else. And so the concern is with what did they do, not what was their intention in doing it. And so on this fact pattern, the judge ultimately concluded that both parties uh, were operating with a mistaken assumption about what was going on here, right? Uh, But because of that difference in terms of how the quitting versus firing is analyzed, um, the judge concluded that the employer's failure to provide further work uh, to the um, uh, plaintiff did amount to a clear and unequivocal uh, communication that they were being terminated, like just not calling him back or giving him any jobs to do. Uh, And conversely, the judge found that it wasn't the intention of the employee to quit or walk away, um, even though if you analyzed the fact that he didn't do anything else, uh, might have led to that from an objective assessment. And so the result of it was that this on this fact pattern of just, look, you said you're ready for work. You sent in the letter from your doctor saying you were fine to work and then just radio silence. <laughs> they concluded on that basis that it was a dismissal. Uh, and so 
the next issue for the judge is, well, what is the person entitled to? And when a judge is deciding that, they would need to look at factors such as, you know, uh, how long has the person worked there for? Uh, you know, how senior were they? What, you know, how specialized are their skills? Those kinds of things. Um, and then a judge also needs to take account of whether a person took reasonable steps to mitigate their loss. And the way that works is this. If somebody's imp- fired without proper notice and without cause, they have an obligation to try to get another job, right? You can't just loaf around on the couch and wait for a check, right? Yeah. And it's only if the person can't get another job uh, that they would be entitled to uh, pay in lieu of notice, right? Because the idea is you have to do something to try to avoid losing money, like look for another job. And here, the fellow did find another job for a short time, which eventually he resigned from because of lack of he had lack of seniority there and it wasn't paying satisfactorily. And so he, after a short period of time, resigned from another driving job that he had for a, uh, a little bit. And so what the judge did is the judge found that for this person, given his age and seniority and so on, um, he was uh, properly entitled to 15 months' notice, which he wasn't given, right? He was just, uh, by not calling it back or giving him any work, that amounted to a firing or termination. Uh, And so he was entitled to 15 months of his salary minus the amount of money that he earned at the other job when he worked there for a short period of time. And so ultimately, he was uh, awarded $73,879.38. And so um, I think for people listening, the takeaway would be, you know, be clear in terms of what's going on and bear in mind that whether a person's entitled to any compensation at all, if they're uh, leave a job, is going to turn on the first step of it is going to be, were they terminated or did they just abandon or quit their employment, right? Uh, and if you just quit or stop showing up, your um, person would not be presumptively entitled to um, uh, compensation in lieu of notice. Uh, but a judge would have to analyze whether that was the person's intention, uh, not just whether that would be a reasonable conclusion from their actions. So there it is, the difference between being terminated uh, and uh abandoning your job learning new things every single week when we do these segments michael i'm always appreciative of the benefit of your knowledge and insight thank you so much always a pleasure have a great day all right you too bye now michael mulligan barrister and solicitor with mulligan defense lawyers during the second half of our second hour every thursday here on the program on cfax 1070